This episode with Jared Klickstein was actually not meant to be a podcast episode. Um, I recorded it just as an interview. Uh, I met Jared on Twitter uh, and learned a little bit about his story. And as I cover uh, drug addiction and crime and homelessness, um, I wanted to learn more about his life. Um, and I had this discussion with him um, just to inform my own reporting. And uh, I found his story so fascinating and I learned so much from it um, that I decided to share it as a podcast. So um, listen to it all the way through if you um, are able to find the time. It's a really compelling, amazing story. Um, and Jared is full of uh, insights into the addiction crisis. Um, so I think you'll learn as much as I did from this. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. So tell me about your story, wherever you want to start. You grew up in Oakland, did you say? Uh, yes, partly. I grew up, well, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. And um, my parents were both uh, heroin addicts and um, crack, crackheads. Maybe right. not best, not not politically correct, but, you know, they, they were right. crackheads. <laughs> and, uh, Safe space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, when I was 12 it kind of got really bad and I sort of told on them in terms of ratting them out to my family, my extended family, basically. Uh-huh. And uh, I was then adopted by my aunt in Oakland. Okay. okay. And I, my email might be going off a little bit, but um, yeah. So I moved to, and technically my aunt lived in Piedmont. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had this crazy switch where I grew up in like a crack house and then moved to Piedmont. Right. <laughs> How long did you live there? From 12 to 18. Okay. So, and, so, and then did you go to Piedmont High? I did go to Piedmont High. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that must have been very interesting. It was. I mean, I was completely accepted and everything, but it was a crazy, um, it was a, it was a very uh, steep change in, in terms of like, I grew up in like a neighborhood where people's parents did drugs and people's parents were carpenters and electricians and, and right. you know, mostly the trades and uh Piedmont I I didn't meet a single dad who was a carpenter or anything like that were you in South Boston no I was in uh, West Roxbury okay actually I I was in a I, and then I moved to Oak Hill Park which was kind of like a I, I I'm Jewish so like we Newton is like a Jewish part of, of Boston but mm -hmm. um I grew up in Oak Hill Park which was mo mostly uh Ukrainian and Soviet Union refugees uh, moving in there, and uh, yeah, a lot of um, a lot of blue collar workers. And how old are you? How old am I now? I'm 33. Okay. And um, how'd your how'd your parents end up? Um, yeah. How'd your parents end up drug addicts? What well, uh, the, it's pretty interesting. My dad started doing heroin when he was about 12 uh, in, oh. in Boston. Um, the way that he got his hands on it was uh, the Vietnam War. The, the veterans were coming back and um, they were coming back with uh, severe mental illness and, and uh, you know, uh, what, what do you call it? Trauma and all that. But they were also coming back with heroin addictions and um, and heroin. I don't know how, you know, heroin was coming back. So um, he used to run errands for returning vets that didn't have legs or you know they were in wheelchairs or whatever they they needed people to run errands and he'd get make some you know get some quarters or something like that but one time a guy just offered him a line of heroin jesus 
And um, he got hooked. He was 12, according to him. I mean, these, you know, I, I don't think he's lying, but. <laughs> yeah. And then he just met your mom in that life. Yeah. My mom, uh, they went to uh, middle school and high school together, uh, got married at 23. My dad quit heroin at 17 and basically just did cocaine and alcohol and was a union carpenter and made a good living and basically sporadically used heroin mm -hmm. and kind of hit from my mom. And, uh, when I would, and then they had me when they were 36 mm -hmm. and they were basically alcoholics, functioning alcoholics and partiers. And then, uh, they had me at 36. Uh, th this is, th this could get too complicated, but my, my, my mother was adopted mm -hmm. and, um, her brother, her biological brother was also adopted and they actually went to high school together and they were friends. Mm. Mm. And, uh, when they were, when my mom went a few years before I was born, my mother's biological brother hired a private investigator and found out that my mother was his sister and contacted her and they reunited and he was a heroin addict. Oh, wow. So, um, they had me at 36 and when I was about one or two, he moved into our house and basically brought heroin into the house. And my, both my parents started using heroin again. And then did they hold down jobs while they were using? Yeah. My dad was a very talented uh, cabinet maker and um, held down a job on heroin. And, and then th they started using crack when I was about seven and, um, he managed to hold the job until I was about 11 and then got laid off. And I mean, he, he was doing, um, he was doing amounts of drugs that are on par with probably like celebrities. I mean, he was doing a thousand dollars worth of crack a day. And, uh, and that was money that he earned from the cabinet making. No, he was a drug dealer as well. And, and, um, had, you know, stashed about, when I was taken away, they had $600,000 left. Wow. And uh, they spent it in about 14 months. Jesus. Yeah. And what, um, was their, what was their parenting? A bit like, were they, uh, I'm sure they couldn't have been great parents, but did they try? Were they neglectful or how, how did, how were, how, how were you raised? Things were good until the heroin kind of got out of control at like five, six, and they were still parents, you know, heroin, if you have enough money, heroin is okay. Right. You can kind of be like a bad parent, but not like yeah. a horrific parent. Right. Uh, once the crack came in, it was like, they were gone all the time. Very neglectful, um, psychotic. I mean, just totally uh, hallucinating uh, scenarios with the police and the FBI and stuff like that. So, once they were mixing heroin and cocaine, it was uh, terrible. And, and, but there was money. So they would just give me money and they say, go, go shopping, go, go food shopping. You know, so it's not like I went without food, but I went without parents. You looked after yourself. Yeah. And then, and then you moved in with your aunt, you said in Oakland, right? Yes. How was yep. she? Well, she didn't have any kids and um, we didn't get along great but she sacrificed 10 years of her life to take my parents' burden and, and, and raise me. And, uh, and my parents, you know, we didn't know what drug addiction was. So we figured, okay, well, there was money. So 
We'll pay for $30,000, 28-day rehab for both of them. And then it'll all go back to normal and I'll move back in with my parents. And um, that didn't happen. You know, they just kind of did drugs for a few years. And um, and then my mother passed when I was 14 fr from, from heroin. And then um, that kind of left my dad with a mental break. I mean, he had been with my mother for almost 30 years. And mm -hmm. uh, so he just kind of went on a... Uh, he just had a wild five years or something where, you know, we tried to move him to Oakland and he moved into San, San Pablo area and, and was in like a halfway house and just kept going to jail and uh, just didn't stay sober. And then um, he finally ended up moving to Florida and, uh, and he got sober in 2011. Is he still alive? He's still alive. Still uh, he is not sober, but he, he remained sober for five years and then began drinking <clears throat> and I would not call it functional, but it's much more manageable than drugs. Um, he is not mentally well, so he just kind of drinks and he doesn't, he will probably die from it eventually. Um, but it is, it is at a, uh, level that it's semi-manageable. Did you drink in the morning? He will probably drink around like noon, one o'clock, and he drinks very medicinally. Like he buys shooters, like those little airplane shots, and he will mathematically work it out where he will have, he'll buy seven a day. Uh huh. Kind of use it almost as like someone would use a Xanax or something like. Right. Or pot. You know, That's how people use pot. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I'm not defending him. I mean, he it's, and he still listens to AA meetings on his phone and stuff. He loves AA. He just, is too broken. I don't know. He, he, he may end up back sober. You know, he, he still loves AA. So did you guys become close at all? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're very close. We talk almost, we talk almost daily. Uh, when I started going through my troubles with drugs and alcohol, I would take trip. I would go to, basically I'd go to jail. I get out of jail. My dad would buy me a Greyhound ticket to Florida. I'd go to Florida. I'd move into his sober living, get a job, work AA half-heartedly, save up enough money for a good relapse, buy a car, drive back to California, do it again. I did that three times. So while you were with your aunt in Piedmont, um, were you, was that a, that was a pretty stable situation for you until you were 18 or did that, when did your use, when did your drug use start? Was that after moving out or was that while you were with your aunt? Well, when I was with my aunt, it was a very stable household. Her and my uncle are professional people, uh, cultured. Um, so there was no. What do, they, like, what do they do? What are they? What's their jobs? My aunt, um, I, she volunteers a lot for the Red Cross, and I think just has business dealings. I really don't know. It, it's she's a very secretive woman. I believe that she bought and sold properties and she owned a tool rental company for a while I, I don't know what she does but my uncle is a ear nose and throat surgeon okay this is the sister of your mom or your dad my dad okay yeah um okay so so they reluctantly took you in raised you gave you a stable home um loving or yeah i i wouldn't say like reluctant wouldn't be the great it they it just was a it was a curveball right uh, 
so they, they, they took me in. It was loving, but I was a real piece of shit. I mean, just to be honest. Um, but any kid, I think, would be. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was not grateful. I was extremely ungrateful for everything. I mean, they, they took me to Italy. I mean, they took me. My aunt's like a traveler. Like, she, she showed me the world. I mean, I went from a crack house to I got to see Versailles in France. Like, I, I got she changed my life. Uh, and I was very ungrateful. Were you, you were angry? You were just angry with the world? Well, very angry because I was kind of um, under the impression that I was at any moment, my I was going to go back to my parents. Like they were going to clean up. And I was just very angry at my parents, but took it out on my aunt and uncle. Um, and I began smoking weed maybe uh, 14 and uh, and drinking. And, and I'd say drinking was a problem, but... Um, and I got into, uh, I had consequences uh, like scholastically and legally from drinking and, I, but I didn't drink every day. I drank every weekend and, um, and I could drink. I mean, I drank hard alcohol heavily and I'd do anything to get it. And uh, my aunt and uncle couldn't really stop me. So they eventually it was just like, Hey, get good grades and you can kind of do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I managed and I got into colleges and I went to UC Santa Cruz and, um, and drank heavily at uc santa cruz my first year but went to school and then around that time heroin and, and oxycontin were just everywhere i mean they were everywhere on campus i, I was uh freshman year i know three or four people that like dropped out from heroin addiction you know in, in my just my dorm building so and my parents are heroin addicts so i was like you know i'm not going to touch any of that stuff all my friends were doing it but um when I saw Oxycontin, I thought, okay, well, this is a pill. I didn't know that it was like a very closely related to heroin. I, I just didn't know. And and people were let doing me, Oxycontin. Let me ask real quick. So when you say all your friends at, at UC Santa Cruz were doing heroin, was that because it was so mainstream that tons of students were, or did you fall into a particular crowd or a little of each? I think I fell into a particular crowd because I went to the art dormitory of uc santa cruz which was um just more prone to drug use and uh, and there was just a few people there that had grown up in la that had already had experience with heroin so and it was all over santa santa cruz is like a i know it's known as a weed town it, it's really a heroin and a meth town uh, uh once you um penetrate the the underbelly it's it's everywhere so right. I, I definitely found the bad kids right and, and all everyone tried heroin and probably, you know, I I, I really enjoyed your podcast and I I, I really respect uh, Thaddeus Russell and I get his whole like, well, I tried meth and you know, um, I get it. I mean, I half the kids I know, half the kids in my friend group, no, three quarters of the kids in my friend group tried heroin. Uh huh. A few are dead. Um, I'd say at least a third of them that tried it got addicted. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say half of that third, it got really crazy. It got, you know, it got bad and they just stopped. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then half, and then the other half got addicted to heroin. Right. <laughs> and right. addicted to heroin. And a few of them died. Yeah. And a few of them got clean. And a few of them, like, I don't even know where they are. I don't know. Mm -hmm. yeah um so uh but i didn't do it i i was it was really the oxycontin and, and this is what you know obviously we i know that you're 
I can only assume that you're very educated on the whole Oxycontin explosion in, in the 2000s. And mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but, but at the time it was like, this is, I mean, at the time it was a legal prescribed drug made by a major pharmaceutical company. And it was yes. before all, it was before we, the, before the opioid uh, epidemic had become, you know, common knowledge. So at the time you're just like, it's like Percocet for you or something like that, right? You're just like, it's, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It hadn't been stigmatized yeah. yet. Yeah, I assumed it was like a Vicodin that was right. like small, you know. Right. Um, yeah, the opiate epidemic was not a term yet. I, I you know, this was two thousand seven. Um, by two thousand eleven, it was I, I'd say it was it was a term uh, when I graduated. But yeah, I kind of hit it right at the cusp and uh, started doing oxycodone and just got completely addicted. I mean, immediately and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say I messed around with it for a couple months and by like three or four months in, I was doing it every single day. And, you know? uh, and you were just buying it on campus? Um, buying it from people in drug dealers in town. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I eventually would make drives up to Oakland from campus where I had a connection through someone I went to high school with that would sell me very large quantities and then I began selling it uh, mm -hmm. myself. And um, and just to put it into perspective, you know, the first time I did it, I I bought I split a 15 milligram oxycon with somebody mm -hmm. and got higher than I'd ever felt off ecstasy or MDMA. It was just the greatest feeling I'd ever had. And within a few months, I was probably doing 10 to 15 15 milligram pills a day. So that's probably, that's probably a three thousand percent increase in my dosage or something. Um, and then obviously what happens is it just gets too expensive and you try heroin and you realize, okay, this is cheaper. And at this time, are you still going to class or had you dropped out of school at this point while you're using every day? No, I was still going to class. Um, not, well, I was going to the classes that I needed to go to. I, I basically became like a C minus kind of guy, right. you know, like I'll show up for the midterm. I'll show up for the final. I'll pay, I'll get someone to let me copy their paper or, you know, just a terrible student, but I still managed. Um, yeah. But you didn't give a shit about school anymore other than like get just graduating. Yeah. And, and, and eventually I would drop out. Okay. <laughs> but, but, um, but yes, I, I, it was just like do the bare minimum and, and then even like tell my teachers that I had a heroin problem. Oh, wow. So by junior year, it was like I was telling my teachers I have a heroin problem. And there was a policy at UC Santa Cruz where I guess a few years before a, a, a student had done this and the teacher said, well, I don't care. I'm going to fail you. And, and, and the kid ended up uh, hanging himself. So oh. um, so there was this policy, like if a kid says he's a heroin addict, you know, work with him. And uh, yeah. Teacher, what what is a professor supposed to do with that? I don't like... I got extended deadlines and uh, just a little bit more leniency with like, okay, I'll give you a C minus. <laughs> where, where, where's the line though? Cause does that feel like, do you think that that's enabling? Yes, but I don't, I, I don't believe I told them I was a heroin act. I believe I said I had a problem with prescription opiates. Uh -huh. This was before what we're doing, dealing with now where it's when someone says that, 
back then it was like, okay, this kid's got a Vicodin problem or whatever. Right, right. I doubt that's the policy anymore. I would have, I mean, I was seeing a therapist on campus and telling him that I was doing drugs and, um, but you know, I don't know if it's his responsibility to like report me. I, I don't know. You know, I, I well, what did your therapist, how did, was your therapist helpful? Well, he was like, you can't be, I, my whole thing was like, I'm fine. I just need to find a way to keep doing opiates without committing crime to, to get money. You and know, he's telling you, no, you got to quit. He's like, you got to get off opiates. Like, this is crazy. You know, he, I'm not blaming him at all. You know, he was cool, but, um, at what point is it okay for him to be like, I'm going to report this to the Dean or I, I don't know, you know, right. not, nothing ever got, I'm sure now it's different because it's such a huge problem and it's such a, uh, everyone knows about this kind of thing, but right. Just sort of unknown. And just like when my dad was became addicted to heroin, he was arrested when he was 13 for possession of heroin. They didn't even know what heroin was. He just got possession of narcotics. And my grandpa picked him up and just said, you know, don't do that again. You know, no one knew what it was really. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah. And um, and so then at what point did you drop out? Well, um, well, just very quickly, I want to note when I first started doing heroin, it was $25 for a gram and it was terrible. It was very bad quality and you'd have to smoke the whole gram to get high. Around 2009, there was a transition where the cartel started bringing in heroin that was uh, $80, a gram, 80 to $100 a gram. That was about 10 times more powerful. Mm -hmm. And this is where, um, and I don't know if you've done a lot of research about this. I, I, I don't. I've done some research about it, and apparently there was a deal between Obama and the Iranians mm -hmm. where we had to basically lay off of some, they, they were doing some dealings with drug trafficking in South America, mm -hmm. not, not Iran, but the the, uh, the terrorist organization associated with Iran, which I forget what they're called. It's not Hezbollah. With Iran, Iran funds Hezbollah. Um, yes, maybe it was Hezbollah. Okay. So, and I'm not saying one thing led to another, but around the time of this deal, they basically, I, you can look it up. There's like a Newsweek article on it. And, yeah. and I'm not blaming Obama for this. I mean, I'm just saying this is an unintended right. consequence. Mm -hmm. He kind of pulled the DEA off of Hezbollah's dealings in South America with, uh, in, with some kind of deal with Iran or something like that. And that's when I know, like, and that coincided with like, all of a sudden there was like much more powerful heroin on the streets. Was it black tar? Uh, it was black tar, but it was a different kind of black tar, which is called gunpowder, which was more of like a tannish powder as opposed to like a black sticky resin. Okay. And, uh, and I think, that, you know, this could have been like a West Coast phenomenon where heroin all of a sudden became much more powerful. And it could have been a deal between the cartels because, you know, the, the, they used to grow, they were growing opiates. They were growing poppies in Mexico. Right. And I think at some point they made a deal where they were importing raw opium from the Middle East and they started processing much more powerful heroin. But whatever, that's another story. Yeah. Um, OK, so I'm basically like committing little thievery and stuff to, to support my heroin ha habit senior year. And I don't know what to do. And I'm buying it from the cartel. Um, they have uh, I'm sure you've heard about this. They just have drivers drive around with walkie talkies. And, you know, it's a very organized system. Mm -hmm. And um I basically said, can I work for you? And, um, and they said, yes, you know, you're a, a white kid with a school ID. If you get pulled over, they're probably just going to let you go. You know, they're not going to search the car and stuff. It was a win-win. So, um, so I started working for the cartel. And when I say that, I don't, it, it very low level. Like I was not in a, I was working for people that 
were extremely low level. They just were supplied by the cartel. Were these guys, would, I don't know if it was the case at the time, were they Honduran nationals? Um, they, I, they weren't. Okay. I, I don't think they were, but I really never asked. Okay. Uh, they really could have been. I know the Hondos, I know the Hondo thing. That's like, uh -huh. I, I know people that have been to Denver, to San Francisco, all that, uh, Salt Lake City. The, the, you were completely right about that. I know people, because I'm in recovery. So like, I know people that are from these places and they're like, they call them the Hondos. The, right. And uh, the, tra the, the runners are all Honduran. These guys, I just never confirmed. I, I don't know, but. Um, and what was your job? Your job was to bring it onto campus? No, my, my job was to drive around uh, my aunt had let me use her 91 Toyota Corolla to drive, you know, to, to, I just made up some lie where like I had, to, I needed the car to drive to class or something. And I borrowed the car and, um, I'd every morning I'd go meet them at their house. They give me like a, a jar a, an Altoid case filled with divvied out heroin, half grams of heroin. And they gave me a walkie talkie and I would just drive around and they would say, okay, go to the CVS on high street. And then I'd go there and I'd meet someone, sell them heroin. Then it was just a constant, just drive around. Um, this was second semester senior year. The problem was that they knew that I was a heroin addict. So they said, hey, we don't want you to fall asleep while you're driving. So in order to do this job, you have to do meth. So, uh, and I'd never done meth before. And they said, well, you can't do that. You have to do a line of meth before every shift. So we know you won't fall asleep while you're driving. And uh, so I did that. And I, and within two weeks I dropped out, I, within two weeks I was fired, dropped out, lost every, uh, relation, friend, friendship. I mean, I lost everything, right. two weeks, uh, went completely insane. Uh, they fired me because I was, I accused them of <clears throat> some conspiracy or something. And, you know, you they were like, you got, psychotic. you got psychotic. Once I got, yeah. Uh -huh. Um, and, uh, dr dropped out. Um, Can I ask you, I'm sorry. Do the, the guys you were working for, I mean, obviously it was a business relationship. Did you, did they have any compassion? Did you like, did you get any sense of, did they like you? Did they give, give even the slightest shit about you? They, not them, but I've definitely had relationships with um, drug dealers that through time, I don't think they could help but have some kind of sympathy. But uh, these guys know, do I blame them? No. I mean, they were they came to a country where there was a huge, there, there, there's a huge um, consumer base for, for their product. Uh, there's right, a lot but, of but telling somebody who's a heroin addict in order to work for us, you need to do meth is pretty psychopathic. I mean, it's, it's um, it requires a degree I think of 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 devaluing human life that I find interesting. <laughs> oh, certainly, um, certainly, uh, yes. Now I'm very grateful to them that they didn't I, I, that they didn't kill me because I, I kind of accused them of some things and they really could have just they were murderers. I mean, they could have instead right. they just hey don't call us anymore. You're not working for us anymore. You know. Right. What did you accuse them of in your psychotic state? Well, they were, pay I was working with another runner who was like a Mexican American girl, like a, just a, an American girl, but right. was like, could speak Spanish. So she was a little bit closer to them and she was a heroin addict. And, uh, I accused them of paying me in low quality heroin and paying her in higher quality heroin. And that there was some kind of conspiracy where I was working, more, you know, I, it was, it wasn't like a, 
it wasn't some like psychotic conspiracy. It was more just like you guys are fucking me. Right. There's an HR complaint. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an HR complaint, and <laughs> uh, which like I at the time like I didn't know like you probably shouldn't do that with people that are associated with the cartel. Right. So, <laughs> I'm grateful that they just said get the fuck out of here, basically. But um. Right. But uh, no, I mean, but listen, I don't know where these people come from. I'm sure where they come from, it's the human life is not. I mean, not not because of not because they're lesser than, but just because of their so from a criminal element, right? Criminal element where you know, yeah, they don't they did not value me. I, <laughs> they, right. you know, I, I don't think they would have cared if I died or not. But you know, then again, I'm sure they've seen a lot of pain and suffering. They've been desensitized to this kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So um, so anyway, this is my story with with how I got on meth, and this was 2011, and and meth is. Um, even since 2011 is so different. Was you know, do you know was the meth that you're using made from ephedrine or was it after that? Was it this P2P stuff? I believe it was ephedrine because it was so so expensive. Yeah, uh, huh. this is when meth was you know it was like eighty to a hundred dollars a gram. You bought uh, you bought a bag of point two, so point two of a gram would keep me high for two days, three days. Um. Now people are buying eight balls and doing them in a sitting, mm -hmm. you know? So that's why I think this was that ephedrine stuff, because it was very normal to buy like a portion of a gram and stay high for days. And did, and did it, did it make you want to socialize or did it make you want to like sit in a corner by yourself just using? Well, you know, I told you, like I went psychotic. I think that was really just because of like, I had just never done meth before that very quickly subsided. And I became kind of like a social meth user and I could control it. And I was no more psychotic stuff. And um, yeah, it was kind of a social thing that made me want to like write music. You it, know, was like, it was it made you want to party. It wasn't, didn't make you want to write. So, okay. Yeah. That, yeah. That sounds like the stuff, the veteran stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I became, I made a lot of friends with meth people in Santa Cruz and I kind of had a fun summer. I did end up homeless and got evicted and stuff. And, you know, it wasn't great, but. Um, homeless in Santa Cruz? Homeless in Santa Cruz, yeah. Uh huh. And during um, that time, where were you sleeping? Where were you? What, were you staying in shelters or were you staying on the street? Uh, I was staying in my, my aunt's car and then the police. To, you know, she called the police and, and got them to find me and they took the car back. And then I just on the street, just, you know, sleep on the street. Uh, that was my introduction to homelessness. Um, but then uh, my aunt, I haven't spoken to my aunt since that day. Uh, we are, we email sometimes in regards to f uh, family stuff that we have to organize with my dad. And we're probably on the verge of speaking again. I'd say, uh -huh. right? but, uh, uh -huh. Yeah. Did she, was she very angry and resentful towards you is that why you haven't talked for a while or yes cool okay um no i'd say it, it's she, i want to speak to her you know she doesn't want to speak to me and and um you know my dad put her through hell for 10 years with drugs drug stuff and she just said i'm not doing this for another 10 years right she needed a break yeah and and I, i'm approaching like five years sober so i think she's kind of okay this guy this guy's serious about this I may be ready to speak to him again. Um, yeah, so um, I, I know this is dragging. I'm sorry to take. No, so no, long. no, no. I'm very interested in all the details. Okay, so um, questions. So at this point, I my my mom's brother lives in Los Angeles, and huh. I call him, and he says, "If you can get to Los Angeles, I'll give you one shot 
you know, we'll get you into a rehab. If you relapse, I'm never talking to you again. You know, my family is very like, there's drug addicts in my family. So they know like you can't enable these kind of things. I was going to say, that's actually a very, very, sounds like a very constructive response. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. My here's family. The chance and here's, yeah. there are consequences. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My, my family didn't fuck around because they knew my, they did it with my parents. You know, they learned from my parents. So it's me, Greyhound ticket. I go down to LA. I have insurance because I'm still like my university insurance, like carries over or whatever. And, and, uh, I go to a very fancy rehab in Pasadena. Um, this is the kind of place that has hot tubs and they take you to the beach and there's acupuncture. And um, I get high the whole time. Really? I, yeah. I'm just, cause they let you go out on passes and I'm just like, I'm out. I'm going to Skid Row. Someone told me, Hey, you can go. I didn't know what LA, I didn't know anything about LA. They said, you just take the train to Skid Row. You, people will sell you heroin. So um and this is an issue with the rehab industry because they never kicked me out because, and I don't blame them. It's a business. And I had knew you were using. Well, they'd give me little slaps on the wrists. Like, oh, you can't go to the beach trip now because you tested positive, you mm -hmm. know, but they want to, they want to bill your insurance for $3,000 a day. So they're not going to kick you out. Yeah. Right. Um, unless you're like a threat of violence or something. But so, um, so I don't think that system works at all. Just, just my opinion. Um, so eventually they do kick me out because my insurance lapses because I just, you know, I dropped out of college. I, something happened with my insurance and um, they, con you know, my uncle had already been contacted and they said, Hey, your, your nephew tested positive. So he was already, he's like, I'm never talking to you again. And that was it. And, uh, they and kicked have you talked to him since? Yes, yes, yes. We, okay. we've, uh, once I got sober. Yeah. You reconciled. Okay. Um, but, um, once I got kicked out, I said, I don't know what to do. And they, and people there said, well, we'll just go to Skid Row. You know, um, there's an Occupy Los Angeles protest going on down there. I bet you could live there. Wait, so first of all, who told you that? People that were in the program with me. Okay. Um, this was 2011 Occupy, you know, if you remember. I actually uh, participated in Occupy LA. I was, I was living, I lived in LA for like 12 years and, um, I mean, it was partially voyeuristic, but but I also supported Occupy, but I went, I spent one night in a tent there and I, I went to a bunch of the GAs there. So I was probably, I probably saw you there. You may have seen each other. Yeah. I, I, uh, and by I the way, it went, but at the end, yeah, absolute asylum, open air asylum. It was, yeah, it, yeah. it was, it was, I've never seen such absolute f like failure. I mean, it was just like, I remember there was a GA where like they were trying to hold it together. And then there was like a parade, a march of guys who were like protesting the GA, but they were, but they were clearly mentally ill. And it was, yeah. it was just, it was like Mad Hatter stuff. It was, I've never, it was total insanity. Yeah. And well, it completely fell apart. I, I've actually, I, I've written a book and, and I have a chapter like completely dedicated to my experience at Occupy LA because um, I, uh, I was not there to support the movement because I was a drug addict, but in theory, I do, I did support the movement. I right. mean, I support this, the concept of class, uh, you know, uh, organizing based on class and stuff, not race or, you know, what they're doing now or whatever, but, um, right. but yeah, I, I write all about it. And um, because basically what happened was people from Skid Row just moved in and with them brought heroin and meth. And a lot of these kids that were there for political reasons got on meth. Oh, wow. Jesus. And then, 
and then the rape started and then the stabbing started and then that was happening at occupy la just on city hall yeah Yeah, it, it got crazy and then and then what started happening was if someone would get into a fight with another person over drugs they would just start screaming this guy raped a girl and 20 people would just jump in and just start kicking him. And, uh, I mean, it just went completely mad. And the gangs moved in. The Southsiders moved in. And uh, the, um, what do they call them? Like the downtown gangsters or whatever. I, I, it's some crip or blood gang. They, they, you know, it, it just got crazy. Wow. <laughs> and I was there. You know, I was just, yeah. so, so I, I go to, I lived there for three or four months probably. And then, um, and I looked like a guy that was there from college, there for political reasons, but I was really just a heroin and a meth addict. Uh huh. Uh huh. Used that. I used my image to gain trust from other mostly white college students, and I would rob them and steal steal from them. And um, and I actually became um, very close with a group of Southsiders, uh, Mexican uh, Sereños, and um, and I was basically like the white kid that would hang out with these. Serenios because because I was useful I was because you could I, get into those spaces yeah and I could shoplift I could do all kinds of you know I I would just come back with like socks and they'd be like holy shit this kid has socks like he has clean socks for everybody and I I gained their trust and quickly you know people realized okay this kid is not here for political reasons he's like a piece of shit and uh, <laughs> but I would still take advantage of new people that would show up and and I was a real piece of shit. I mean, I I stole from Occupy. I, me and another guy I knew that was similar situation to me. You know, he was at the he was at the donation tent, just robbing the place blind. And it it turned out most people at the donation tent were robbing the place blind. And uh, and uh, it, it, because kind of people got addicted to drugs, or people were already addicted to drugs, and. Um, it was a, a real experience. And then they came in, obviously, and they they bulldozed the whole thing. And, and I went, me and my Southsider friends went to Skid Row. And I lived on Skid Row. I was Skid there Row. that day when they cleared it. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so um, a lot of kids just went home. and uh, But I didn't have anywhere to go. So I went to Skid Row with my friend, my Southsider friends and lived on Skid Row for uh probably three or four months which is not that long uh i do come back to skid row later in my life uh, where i live long term but um this was 2011 going into 2012 and this is when you could not have a tent you could have a tent but at 6 a.m the police would drive around and you'd have to collapse your tent and carry your tent around Um, were the serenios were they live were they homeless or were they uh like and they did were they out there on skid row with you or were they they were they were basically they were Southsider uh gang members that were almost kind of like excommunicated due to their heavy drug use okay like so they still claim that they were Southsiders but in reality they were just meth addicts that sort of kicked out of the gang who who meth addicts who knew how to deploy violence yeah but also couldn't hang with the gang anymore because it's like you guys are like you guys are junkies basically or whatever right there's a there's a big world of that on skid row where it's like they just couldn't hang you know just too focused on the math or whatever so uh Mm -hmm. yeah so we we were all down there and this is before you could shoplift you know this was before um, you could just camp out and do whatever the hell you wanted this is when you would get arrested for things if you like if a cop drove by and you were just smoking crack you might he might pull over and arrest you right 
um, I was doing a lot of begging at this point. I was um, going to uh, Central Station or whatever it's called, uh, the big train station. Union Station and just basically telling sob stories to people and just saying like, I need, I, I'm just $7 short. I need to get home to San Bernardino. I made 100 to $200 a day doing that and probably put in two hours of effort. Um, and that's how I, cause I was really young looking and really innocent looking and, and I could uh, really pull it off. And then I also did some light thievery, but no shoplifting more so it's very uh, much a, it's very much a thread throughout this entire story that at each moment you were basically like a dirtbag who used your deceptively not dirtbagish uh self-presentation to be yes. able to sort of uh make the most out of your situation sort of milk it yes and eventually this this fades i mean i was at some point i am unable to do this you know um but back then i could and, and i um but what's interesting is this was 2011 going into 2012. And then, um, so then whatever I go, I run around the country. I go to Florida. I try to get clean. I get all fucked up, but I returned to Los Angeles in 2015, um, to live with a college friend that got clean, you know, immediately get kicked out for not staying clean and, and end up on Skid Row again. Hmm. And this is the difference with 2015 is, um, the first major difference that I noticed was that you could leave your tent up. 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And this cr creates permanent, like a permanent state of, um, this is where you start getting structures and people having couches in their tents and TVs. Like that was just not a thing in 2011 Yeah, because every morning you had to pack your tent up and you had to carry your tent around. Um, another thing about carrying your tent around is that when you have to carry your tent around, you have to carry everything around because you can't leave your stuff in your tent. And this makes things like massive shoplifting more difficult right um, so now you have like a home base where you can just have you know you got a group of friends someone's always at the home base um i met a guy i met a guy by the way on skid row who had he has a two-story structure that he built out of plywood he pimps out women on the second floor that's what he's got a bed there yeah. And, uh, and we I talked to a cop and we mentioned him and he's like, oh, yeah, that guy was asking us if we know anything about how to install solar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is what's happening. And uh, I don't know what happened, but they got the green light to like you can keep your tent up. Uh -huh. um, and this kind of kind of created this state of uh, this permanent state of homelessness down there. And and, um, and I actually didn't have a tent. I just slept on the street this time. And um and also, just to backtrack, um, meth became so crazy, uh, I quit meth and switched to crack because crack was more manageable than meth. Um, I started going to jail a lot when I would do meth or end up in psychotic breaks and stuff. So I actually used crack to stop using meth. And my life actually got a lot better. Huh. Um, so, yeah. So, um, and this is when the shoplifting started. So, so now, like, shoplifting is huge and I get into the the shoplifting thing and i'm with i used to get trained by a older guy that i become friends with uh on the whole system and um we this is before you see this like crazy like people just walk in and no one does anything and this is kind of like the beginning of that the people weren't really doing that but um i you know we had a system where he was like a known guy that would shoplift so he would go into the store Security would immediately be on him. 
Oh, he'd that's go, smart. He'd to, yeah, he'd go to the razors or other commonly stolen items and then and drag all the attention to that aisle. And then I'd sneak in and go to the aisle with the makeup or you know, whatever, and just rob it blind, basically. Right. Wow. Huh. It's a very good system. And yeah. we had we had professional fences that would give us shopping lists. Um, it was this is kind of before Snapchat and stuff. We would just get verbal shopping lists. Uh-huh. And um I made probably if I wanted to, I, I probably three hundred dollars a day, two two trips. You know, if I wanted to, I could make five hundred. Um, you just had a backpack you just shoveled all into. I, you know, the the shopping bags that like the like the plastic shopping bags that you purchase to like permanently use yeah. use like Trader Joe's. I just have two of those in my pants. Walk in, take them out of my pants, fill it up, walk out. And um, what neighborhoods were you going to? Or was it all downtown or was it all over the city? It was not downtown because you just couldn't do it downtown. I mean, they just had like security. security. Right. So I, the, most of the job was getting on the bus and getting on the train and going to other communities and doing it. And um, the art of it was really spreading, you know, spreading it around, you know, so you never really get famous at one store, you know, so, and we, we were traveling as far as Malibu, mm -hmm. uh, and this is before they were really locking everything up. So it was very profitable. And, and um, but the job was really getting to these faraway stores in the Valley and in Malibu, Culver City. Um, and uh, and you could get arrested, mm -hmm. you, know? Mm -hmm. and, you know, or they physically try to block you from leaving the store and stuff. And um, but, yeah, th this went on. And then um, did you get arrested while doing this? I never got arrested for shoplifting, but I got arrested for other things such as uh, using drugs on Skid Row. I mean, I got arrested a few times, uh, possession, getting stopped. Um, I got uh, drugs um, planted on me once, you know, j j to really to get me to tell on another guy for selling drugs because it was a guy that did sell drugs, but they were really trying to get him to, they were trying to arrest him and they couldn't, they couldn't nab him. So they, the cops planted on you. I think, I mean, I, they pulled a thing of heroin out of my pocket and I said, listen, if I knew I had that, I would have done it. You, right. know, I, you know, so I, I can't like confirm that they planted drugs on me, but I, I'm pretty sure. And they ended up not arresting either of us. Cause I said, you put that there. I didn't, that's not mine. And then, uh, when you, um, and then when they did arrest you, what would happen to you? So this is what would happen. Um, you go to jail for like three days and, um, I, wanted to quit at one you know eventually you want to stop this and um i was actually like begging to go to jail for longer but i couldn't go to jail for longer than like five days um they Were always like available in jail was it easy to get drugs um no okay no so you you would kick yeah i i would kick well i wouldn't finish the kick because i never could get arrested for long enough so um eventually um i started like like praying to the universe like send me to prison you know the twin towers is that where you were the twin towers downtown well i'd go to the glass house because the glass house is like on it's like where they kind of hold you before they take you to twin towers okay but, it, but anyway eventually uh, i'm at the i'm on i i would do meth once in a while so i did meth i went kind of psychotic i went to a panda express someone sucker punched me in the Panda Express, another homeless guy, and I pulled a knife out on him. And um, the police came and I ended up getting my wish. I, I went to jail for a pretty long time. Uh -huh. um, 
I almost went to prison. I, I fought a prison sentence and I spent uh, about six months in, in, in Twin Towers. Hmm. And uh, it was all I could ask for. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> wow. I, what, I, uh, what, was, what was it like day to day? In, in Twin Towers? Yeah. Um, well, this is the thing. I, I'm, I'm Jewish, technically. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm technically I'm half Jewish, but you know, I'm Jewish enough that Nazis are probably not going to want me to join their game, you know? Uh, so they, um, they, they could tell, no, they couldn't because I don't, not, I don't want to sound stereotypical or anything, but I, I don't look Jewish. Right. That makes sense. Um, right. I look quite not Jewish. I just look oh. like a white guy or whatever. So, oh. um, so, but my last name is Klickstein, which, you know, I don't know. It could be. These guys even know you could be like, it's just old German, you know? Well, well, that's kind of what I did. So when I went in, the white guys come up to you immediately and they're like, you know, what's up? Are you a Wood? Are you a Peckerwood or whatever? So I said, yeah, yeah, I guess I'm a Peckerwood. So I, I joined the Peckerwoods. Um, I'm not a guy with a swastika tattoo named John John. You know, they look at your paperwork to make sure you're not like a pedophile or something. And he says, and he says, Clickstein, huh? And then he looks at me and I'm, and I'm like, yeah, that's my last name. And he says, he says, is, is that German? I said, yeah. And he's like, okay, we got it. You know, we got a purebred, you know, so he's all excited. And uh, I basically lied about not being Jewish for like three weeks. And then I found out that um, you can get kosher meal if you're Jewish, which is the most valuable thing to have in, in Twin Towers. Oh, why is, why is that so valuable? Because it's good. It just tastes good. And it's the only thing that tastes good in there. And it's high protein and it's real meat. And um, you can make a lot of money by getting it. Uh -huh. um, I basically came clean to my, the pecker, the leader of the Peckerwoods and said, uh, Hey, I'm Jewish. I'm willing to take a punishment for this. You know, there's a lot of violence in there and, and, uh, but I want to get the kosher meal. And, uh, I didn't say that I wasn't Jewish, but I didn't exactly say I was Jewish when I came in here. So it's, is that, you know, and I was expecting to get a physical, uh, punishment, um, but was prepared for it. And, um, but he just was like, I just want the chicken meatballs and falafel on Tuesdays or whatever, you know, just give me that and we're fine. Do these guys really, are they actually, actually anti-Semitic? Like, I mean, obviously the Nazi stuff is like a lot of that shit is just prison gang bullshit, right? Yeah. They, they, the Mexican mafia is doing the Mexican thing. So they got to do the fucking Nazi thing, but they don't, but do, do they, so like, would, do they even have enough of a race, race ideology to actually actually have personal animosity against Jews or was it just, you well, know, the, they got to live up to their stupid. Yeah. Um, this is the thing that the whites are the Peckerwoods and the Peckerwoods are not necessarily racist. There's a uh, subsets of whites in there that th there's some hardcore guys that are like, I'm a, I'm a skinhead or I'm like a Nazi lowrider or like, but the Peckerwoods are like the umbrella organization. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the, the, the Nazis are, a very small portion of, of the, the whites. Um, they are Nazis. They have swastikas. They, they like Hitler. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a European history major in college. Um, and uh, they didn't know anything really about Germany or Hitler, or, you know, right. when asking questions about this, did they hate me? No, they don't hate Jews. Right. They're like progressive now. I don't know what's going on, but they're just like, we just don't want you to, breed with our sisters and our daughter you know we just don't just you can hang out with us just don't do just don't like breed with us basically right and um 
And not only that, first of all, they're, they're guys from like Lancaster that who didn't, their dads were on meth and they went to juvie when they were 14 and they just wanted to feel a part of something and they got a swastika tattoo. I mean, they're, they're not like, they're idiots. Right. They're, they're, it's unfortunate. Um, they were very kind to me. And um, in fact, they, their racism uh, or their anti-Semitism sort of transferred into more of a respect where it was like a mythological uh, kind of like, can you bring me good luck you know, in with, uh, and they kind of were obsessed with me, to be honest. And, um, and they wanted me to give them legal advice on their cases. And, um, they, I eventually got a yarmulke, you know, um, so you became Jewish. This is like, this is working out for me. (laughs) No, no, I I didn't, I didn't wear a yarmulke, but they give you one when you get the kosher meal, like a rabbi, like comes and like gives you, and like, I've never worn a yarmulke. I'm not a practicing Jew or whatever, but when I got the yarmulke, that was like, they were like, we got to, you got to tell us about this. Yarmulke. Like I was like teaching them about Jewish stuff. And, and it got to the point where the Mexicans, the, the, the shot color of the Mexicans was like, can I wear the yarmulke when I gamble? And, um, cause they thought it was good luck. Yeah. And then it, and then I said, of course, just, you know, just, yeah. Did you didn't know anything about Judaism to teach them. I didn't really know a lot. So I, and they were so fascinated that I had to like make stuff up to be honest, I, I don't really, I wasn't really raised practicing or anything. And, and, uh, so then it got to the point where like the Nazi guy, John, John wanted to wear the yarmulke when, when he gambled and, um, and, and, and he <laughs> this is so wild. There's a Nazi guy wearing a yarmulke. Yeah, he tail. assured me he was so polite and he was like, I will respect it. I promise you it's not out of disrespect. He was just a degenerate gambler and was like, I need some luck on my side. And, and, uh, so he would wear it when he gambled. And he had swastika tattoos and, and it was like, well, it's an you... image that, that, that it's one of the most beautiful images in my head. It, uh-huh. It's, it's, it's a tragic image, I guess, in some right. senses. It's absurd. It's, it's absurd. Did like at the time, were you cognizant of how absurd all this was or it just became normal prison life? Um, I was like, this is going to be the greatest story ever. Like I'll ever <laughs> yeah, I, I knew it was completely absurd, but um, these guys are, you know, listen, if you're like a guy that ends up in jail all the time, like chances are you don't have a crazy high IQ. I mean, these guys were like borderline, you know, brain damage from all their, they started right. doing meth at 12 and, and they're probably not that smart to begin with. So it was just interesting. It was an interesting experience with, with people that are self-described Nazis. Um, I'm not like, I'm not trying to like play with that term. Obviously there's a problem and everything, but these guys aren't the problem. I mean, I don't know. The, these particular ones that I was with were like just idiots. I'll have a, um, I'll just a little brief story and then I'll let you get back to your story. But I, I, when I lived in LA, um, I was living in Highland Park back when it was dangerous. Like now it's like, now it's like Hipsterville, but, um, but uh, and next door was this low income apartment building. My wife just loves the story. Cause I, I went, there was a low income apartment building. I had this tiny little house next to it. And um, I shared an easement with the apartment building. That's where my pickup truck was. And I'd go in there. I was going in there to, to get my car. And this guy, like clearly, you know, like from the life is standing there, white guy. And he and he goes, he goes, yeah, yo, he's like, he's like, are you a white boy? And I was like, <laughs> and so I'm like, here I am, like just going to my yuppie job or whatever. And yeah. I'm half Japanese and half white, right? So I was like, uh, 
I'm half white. And he's like, because like, I didn't know. What he, I thought he was just asking me if I'm white. And he, he's like, no, 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 it's all good. And then he goes, and I was like, okay. And he goes, hey, no, no, are you, are you a, are you a Woody? And I was like, yeah. I was, my, my last name is Woodhouse. I was like, uh, I'm a Woodhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what the fuck he was asking me. And then finally it dawned. And then he goes, he goes, no, 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 no. He says, it's all good. He goes, no, no, no. Are you a peck of wood? And that's when it finally, like, yeah. it was like, ding. And I realized that he just gotten out of prison. He was like trying to get the lay of the land. Like he had, he'd been out for a while and he was just, and he had unfortunately like asked the totally wrong dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. No, that's, that's like a total. Yeah, absolutely. So like he, you know, cause I, I've had it too before where like homeless guys would be like, <laughs> hey, hey, would like, like uh, helping a, help a, a white boy out or something like, like yeah. they try to connect with me on that level. And it's like, I'm not going to like give you a dollar because you're white, like you're, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, 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 they get into the, and, and, I, and you experience when you get out and I was not in there for a long time, but like, you know, your, your head's fucked up and you're like, you know, immediately after that, I went to a sober living where like my roommate was black and I was like, am I allowed to do that? Like, am I allowed to sleep in a room with a black guy or whatever? Or he wow. made me, he made me a pork chop and I was like, I'm not allowed to eat that. And then I was, you know, cause, cause you're not like, the threat of violence is so crazy in jail where like if you share food with a black guy like you're gonna you're gonna get punished badly wow um, which, which, but which side by both sides or by your side but by, by all and, and this is how it works in california all the punish the majority of violence is within your own race right it's all it's out, all out of, internal respect the other race right because say out i, I disrespect for the other race yes yeah, say i disrespect a black guy and we fight it's going to create a race war within the jail so if I disrespect a black guy, what he'll do is he'll talk to his shot caller. His shot caller will talk to my shot caller. And out of respect for the black race, the white shot caller will say, we'll punish him internally. To keep, the peace. to keep the peace. And I'm not like defending it, but it, it does work well. Yeah, right. But but another, just, just to answer your first question, the Mexicans run the prison system uh, in, in California and the whites are kind of like a ragtag group of, you know, guys and, and they i think a lot of it is like keeping up with the mex it's like keeping up with the joneses sort of right and it's keeping up with the mexicans and uh they're the ones that make all the rules and the whites have an alliance with the mexicans and just kind of follow these rules and uh, a lot of the blacks and whites don't care about it, the rules well you know what's ironic is that is that you know they're famously like a lot of the la street gangs the black street gangs began a self-defense group yeah. against against white like basically KKK groups, yeah. but now the white gangs then emerge in prison as self-defense against, yeah, yeah. uh, against the non-white gangs. Yeah. But, but then the, and then the Mexicans and the whites are now have like a statewide alliance or something that is pretty old. And I think it's based on meth trade on the mm -hmm. streets, which That's is outdated. It's probably hell's angels, right? Yeah. But it's like outdated, I would assume now, but you know, it, it's basically whites and Mexicans versus Asians and blacks in Got general. It. Oh, the Asians and the blacks are allied. Well, the kind of out of the Asians, They're there's so few Asians, like, and they just have nowhere to go, basically. And right. it's called brothers and others. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't support any of this, but this is how it is, you know. And and uh, I did share food with black guys in there. You just have to keep it real secret. And uh, right. and basically everyone was doing it. Even my shock holler was doing it. He was like, just don't, no one can know what we, you know. He's like, because if someone finds out that I'm letting people share food with black people, 
it's going to get words going to get out and someone's going to like send someone on the yard to like stab me. Right. It's like, it's really about like pretending that I give a shit about, and he was also like, I'm half Armenian. Like, I don't get, he's like, I'm not even like super white or anything. Right. <laughs> so, uh, it's just a crazy world. It, it's crazy. It, it's crazy. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, it saved my life. And, and I'm not saying jail is like the answer, but like, it's the best answer right now we have, I think. And, and instead, of, but I obviously in my, I, I like Michael Schellenberger and, uh, and, and kind of think that that's a much better solution. Yeah. Um, and like a massive uh, development of like uh, shelter slash rehabilitation, long-term rehabilitation programs yeah. uh, because jail was the best thing that happened to me doesn't mean that it's the it's the solution well then when you got out um did you stick with did you go back to using or did you stay was that the end well my intention was to stay well first of all it, it physically got me off opiates you know but the thing about drug addiction is like there's now that you know this could get a little bit uh aa or whatever but um you know there's the physical addiction and then but if it was just the physical addiction, then when we get off opiates, we would, you think we'd never go back. So there's a, there's like a secondary component of like a mental addiction, a mental obsession. And, uh, I did intend on staying clean, but I, I didn't. And I struggled and, um, I ended up having some severe health consequences. Um, I, first of all, I started the tendency for when I would relapse was that I would black out immediately and, and wake up in the hospital so that since I got out of jail, I got high a handful of times, all resulting in me waking up in the hospital. Uh, one of which I woke up missing part of my face. What? And, uh, yes. And, uh, I, um, and that's kind of when I stopped, I, I woke what up. Happened? Well, I was sober for about four months in Florida. This is one of those Greyhound trips back to Florida. I came back to LA relapsed with a friend and within eight hours I woke up in a bathtub in Chinatown uh full of blood I'd broken into like an apartment and um and uh not to be uh, uh I, I warning this is a pretty graphic um I hadn't done meth in years and, and um I did meth I did meth heroin and cocaine and blacked out and when I woke up I had clearly been in some kind of physical altercation with someone and my lip was all messed up and I'd actually shoot it away wow i'd actually um not to be super graphic again but um i'd pretty much eaten part of my face jesus and um i have since received uh i got reconstructive surgery you can't really notice it but uh they, they completely rebuilt my lip wow. uh were you were you psychotic at the at that time at that moment uh, probably but i was blacked out so you're you black, blacked out chewing your face basically. yeah I, I don't i don't remember it um, and when I woke up, I had lost so much blood and I didn't know what happened. And I, um, had enough money to, um, buy more heroin. So I went down to Skid Row and I wrapped a, a shirt around my face so no one could see my face. And I bought enough heroin to kill myself. And, and I, and I did, I, I went to a public bathroom on fifth in um, Los Angeles at the flea market. And I did a purposeful shot of heroin that would kill me. And, um, and I died, but paramedics came and they narcan me and, and I came back to life. And, and then I got high one more time about seven months later. So, so I'm sorry, just to be clear, you were intent on, you were deliberately taking a leave. Yeah, 
Yes, okay. yes. Um, and uh, was when blessed. They you back, were you just infuriated? I mean, people are even when they well, are, not, are, are not suicidal when they're not. Yeah. Um, I was very angry, but I was also had lost so much blood and was on the brink of death from other things that I, I just kind of don't remember the first week of coming back. And fortunately, I had Medi-Cal. And for some reason, they blessed me with. I landed at a hospital, uh, Keck, you know, Keck Institute or whatever, uh, and um, they have a plastic surgery training program. And they said, hey, we've never seen anyone do this. This is the this is some crazy shit. But if you'll let us practice on you, we'll do it for free, basically. And nice. they uh, they reconstructed my bottom lip and uh, they did a pretty good job. I'm very grateful for it. Uh, it's not perfect when you, you know, I, I have a noticeable scar and everything, but um, I'm very grateful for that. It's a reminder every day of like, that's what happens when you get high, you know? Right. Uh, and uh, I did get high one more time. Mm -hmm. about seven months later the same thing happened i blacked out i woke up and no, I was sorry to, i'm sorry to keep interrupting i just want to oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So, so you you did the attempted suicide um they narcan you um and then you didn't use again for seven months yes and i okay. lived with a sober friend that basically took care of me uh and drove me to all my doctor's appointments i got i took it took three surgeries they you know she took me to get the surgeries and financially supported me basically for seven months um and then I got high again and uh, I did the same thing. And I woke up and I was missing a toe. What? Yeah. So I, I actually, I actually wasn't missing a toe. I was missing, my toe was very damaged and I went to the hospital and they said I was missing a bone in my toe. So I had removed the bone from my big toe on my right foot uh, in a blackout. You're, you had done it to yourself. Yes. Yeah. What was it? What were the drugs you were high on that time? Was it meth? Uh, I used heroin and cocaine and then I blacked out. So I may have done meth. I don't know. What do you think? Do you have any idea how you the fuck you removed a bone in your toe? Do you have any theories? Uh, yes, I, I was. Um, I was in like a bathroom with a uh, nail clipper and I in a blackout, I must have been clipping my nails and just kept going. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so they actually had to cut my toe off. I didn't remove my toe. I removed the bone. Um, and um, where was that? Was that a keck again? Or did you go to? Um, no, I went to uh, in Sherman Oaks. I went to a hospital on Van Nuys and Ventura or something like that. Okay. Um, right. So then, so then, so then that was the last time you ever used? Well, well, I, they gave me like obviously painkillers and I was in pain and I had some money and um, I used for like three weeks and then I got into a rehab and that's the last, that was uh, August 10th, 2018. When, when you're, um, a, when you're a clearly a drug addict and you go and you need an, like emergency surgery and they give you painkillers, do they give you opioids? In that case they did because it was so painful. And, and they and I was like screaming when they cut my toe off and and uh, if I think no they really try not to now they know I mean I'd say the last five ten years they know right and, and now I, I've broken my arm in sobriety and I've requested no painkillers and and uh, they they're cool about that now. There's no alternative to opioids for an analgesic. Ibuprofen eight hundreds you know. Okay. But so, I mean, yeah. 
So I'm sorry, back to the story. So, so then you you got out of that hospital and you kept using for about three weeks, did you say? Yeah, because of the pain, really. Um, and then I ran out of money and then I got into a state rehab called Cry Help in North Hollywood, which uh, is a great rehab because if you use, they kick you out. Mm. It's consequences, mm -hmm. you know, because they don't give a fuck. It, it's on Medi-Cal. So it's like, they're not even making that much money. And there's a line of people that want to come in. So you you call you you say you you even if you're disrespectful you do something you break a rule you get kicked out right mm -hmm. and sometimes you get kicked out and then they let you back three days later but it makes you realize like okay I really need this you know I need to be like I need to I need to kind of listen and shut the fuck up for a bit and do what they <laughs> tell me to do I would imagine that that not only creates consequences in terms of like you have something to lose so you abide by the rules, but it probably also sets an entire different tone for the facility, right? Where there's like a certain matter of like respect for the facility and then maybe even followed by self-respect because yep. you're in an ordered environment. Um, and it's your facility. It's your home. You clean the bathrooms. I mean, they don't, right. there's no hot tubs, you know, you're scrubbing toilets and, um, and it's, I have a deep love for this place now because it was my home. And, um, this is kind of drug addicts like i like you said they don't have agency you know and, and i totally agree and um they are only driven by consequences basically and um you can't like reason with a drug addict that's on fentanyl or heroin i'm just telling you like you will rot you will hurt your own grandmother you mm -hmm. know get ten dollars mm -hmm. um, so you need to live. That's why jail kind of like works. I just don't think it's the best solution, but it's like there needs to be, I needed to be in a place where it's like, if you don't wash your hands after you pee, you get this shit kicked out of you in the back by three guys. Like I needed that. Mm -hmm. It really worked for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we should have violence as a consequence for drug addicts, but uh, you know, something like this kind of like, I was at the midnight mission for six months one time on Skid Row. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, yeah. That place, if you fuck up, you're homeless. There's a line of people trying to get into that place, you know? So if you fuck around, you're gone and you have to work hard. I mean, you have to work 20 hours a week doing labor, you know, at the midnight mission. And uh, it's a great program. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not like that anymore. They changed it. Now you're like allowed to do drugs there. And it's more of a homeless shelter where you can do drugs. But um, mm -hmm. back then it was a drug program when I was there. Mm -hmm. um, let me let my cat in one sec. Of course. Okay. Um, I want to ask you some general questions, but I don't want to end the story if there's more. Um, no, that's basically it. I got sober. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I, my life is, I went from a homeless guy that ripped it, you know, ate his face to a, uh, I'm a professional person. I work in visual effects for television and um, I was a carpenter for a long time, but I was very lucky and, and got this profession, you know, this white collar job. You do uh, motion graphics? Uh, I'm a producer, so I really just manage workflows of for, for TV shows and stuff like that. But okay. um, um, but my point is, like, I, I got sober, and I was I was a person that you would see on one of these videos screaming with blood and shit all over them, and now I'm not. You know, people can do it. Uh, can everyone do it? I don't know. I may be blessed in that I didn't. Ha I don't have like permanent schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. I'm not a complete idiot, you know, that helps. <laughs>
but you know it's possible well what are what are your thoughts about the current discourse around the the addiction crisis especially in well, california when it comes people don't you know there's a lot of like you know i went on a date with a girl here that was like talking about fentanyl and how like her mom said that like a cop almost OD'd from touching fentanyl. And she was saying like, there's so much uh, disinformation about fentanyl. Like mm -hmm. it's like, okay, maybe there's some disinformation about fentanyl, but we're dealing with like an epidemic unheard of. We're talking about a substance that is killing children. You know, right. kids at my little, little uh, cousin's school, they go to a, they go to a, a private Jewish school in LA. Kids are dying from buying Xanax on Snapchat. Right. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about you know, kids of millionaires, maybe billionaires dying. Not that they matter any more than a poor kid, but I'm just saying like, this, this is a problem that stretches socioeconomic class. It stretches across race, culture, religion, children are dying. Um, there's a discourse going on right now where we have to like destigmatize de drug use and stuff. And I totally get that for things like weed, you know, but if you're not a drug addict or you don't really know some drug addicts, you know, you, you're, you're very educated on this, you know, so, so someone like you, I would consider, you know, uh, the same as someone that has a direct experience with addiction. Um, th this isn't something where it's like, Hey, let's destigmatize de fentanyl use. Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. like destroying, this is destroying a city. Uh, it's destroying a place where I grew up. Mm -hmm. uh, it will destroy San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, it is destroying San Francisco. I mean, I would also say something about the destigmatization thing, which is that, you know, if you're a drug addict in the tenderloin, first of all, it already is destigmatized. It's already totally normalized um, for those who are using. Um, I mean, it's normalized now for people who are not using too, but it's it's like if you're just focused 24 hours a day on getting getting enough money to get your fix, First of all, you don't give a shit about what like normal San Franciscans, you, the last thing on your mind is what normal people around you, like whether they're looking down on you or not, I would imagine. Um, so really what the destigmatization thing is, is about, it's not about users' feelings and users feeling bad. They could give a fuck about what you think of them. Yeah. It's, about, it's, about, it's about trying to persuade non-users to think that it's okay to use to destigmatize it in their own minds, in yeah. the minds of non-users, in the minds of normie voters, yeah. um, which is it's a political agenda. Selfishness. Yeah, and, it, and it's, a, it's a way to basically they're saying you should um, be okay with there being an open air drug market and yeah. an open drug use in yeah. this huge swath of downtown San Francisco. You should be okay with it. And if you're not okay with it, it's because you lack compassion yeah that's the that's the political message which is fucked up for anybody who wants to live like in a healthy environment and take their kids to the park when they want to but it's also fucked up in terms of like obviously in terms of addicts themselves and yeah. like we shouldn't be okay for the sake of the people who are addicted to drugs to for for them to use drugs indefinitely like our expectations should be you, yeah. you're in a, you're in a tough spot right now, but our social expectation for you is to get sober and get your shit together and live a long and, and, and fulfilling life. Maybe have kids, you know, get a full job. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And, um, okay. So like th this is, um, it's going to kill people. It's going to kill way more people by destigmatizing 
drug use and kind of allowing it to happen, uh, it's just going to end up with more death. And um, this kind of like, and then Schellenberger talks about this where it's like, well, let's just get everyone on Suboxone and Methadone or whatever. Let them, let them quit at their own rate. It's like, we're talking about kids that are 20 to 25 years old. Like you're just going to throw in the towel and get on methadone for the rest of your life. Like, you know, I I've been on methadone. My dad's been on methadone. Like it is not a life you want to live. Right. Uh, no, listen, if you're 70 years old, like my dad, if he started doing heroin again, I'd say, Hey, maybe just get on methadone for the rest of your life. I mean, you're 70, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, so, so did they throw Did they put you on, on methadone or suboxone? What was your, what, uh, I, I've been on both, uh, self prescribed. Okay. Uh, they tried to the rehab me. at the rehab was it just cold turkey what was what how they how did uh, they get you my, off? well uh they usually give you uh subutex or suboxone uh -huh. for you know a, a week I, I have my own system that i like to do which is um i take maybe one tenth of the suboxone that they offer and it uh -huh. usually works best for me um do they, they give you naltrexone uh, they tried to put me on naltrexone when I got out. I thought about it. I did not take it. Okay. How come uh, you wanted to do it without? Well, how come? Um, I was going to get a shot. I actually support naltrexone. You yeah. Know, but um, I do too. I about adverse effects of it. And I was in a pretty good place and was like, you know what? I think I, I ripped my toe off and I like, I, you know, I deboned myself last time I got high. Like, I think I got this. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, I was correct. You know, yeah. but I support people doing the naltrexone shot if you just, you know, if you, if you just can't um, get off opiates. Um, but yeah, so, so, um, so yeah, like my, my, my proposed kind of like, you know, what, what I think works is, is um, you can't let people just get smoke fentanyl at a school bus stop. Right. You know, which like is, a, I guess it's a radically far right opinion now, but, but you just, you just can't. <laughs> You can't do that. There needs to be consequences. I totally support not putting people in prison for like possession of weed or possession of fentanyl. If you're selling fentanyl, you got to go to fucking prison and get the hell out of here. I mean, you're killing people. Um, but, but by the way, nobody goes to prison for possession of weed. Like, I know. Like, I know. like the, the, <laughs> the, 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 even, you know, when Biden did his, which I support, you know, I support his uh, sure, yeah. trying to reviewing to possibly reschedule marijuana and doing the, but then like, you know, um, uh, 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 whatever, um, uh, letting off everybody who's in prison for drug charges. But what's been pointed out is that if you, are if you if you're in federal prison with with a minor possession of marijuana charge it means you did something a lot worse it means you did something a lot worse and you pled down to that charge it does not mean that you were actually arrested and thrown in prison for a minor possession of, of marijuana so those folks who are in there for a minor possession of marijuana they ain't that innocent like they've done something bad yeah no no t totally i mean i it, and uh you know i i yeah, it's kind of like this whole thing where it's like we need to end the war on drugs and stuff. And it's like you're really conflating, you know, th there's a difference between like in the 60s, like throwing every black guy in jail for weed to like we're beyond that. I mean, that that is not happening in San Francisco right now. No. Yeah. You know? Right. Well, right now what they call I mean, they're calling what uh, Brooke Jenkins is proposing a war on drugs. It basically anything short of legalization is now called yeah. drugs just automatically. It's just, if you arrest people for open drug dealing, then you're, you know, it's war on drugs and mass incarceration. It's just yeah. a total rhetorical tool. And, and uh, you know, drug addicts are people and they 
deserve, you know, the basic human rights and everything, but a, a person that is addicted to heroin or meth or coke or crack or fentanyl is, is a reptile. I mean, you are only utilizing the reptilian portion of your brain. And it's like almost like an animal where it's like, we need to like, the greatest thing you can do is like lock them somewhere for two weeks and just let it get out of their system and then wake them up because they, they will not right. respond to anything, but right. consequences. It, it, and uh, so, so I, obviously I don't want to send everyone to jail, but like, I think, you know, you go to jail and they basically say, Hey, you want to go to this, you want to commit to a year long program where if you fuck up, you're going to go back to jail for a month and then you get another opportunity to go back to the rehab. Mm -hmm. At these rehabs, maybe we teach them how to weld or like teach them how to like, you know, maybe they like computer science or something. You know, I don't know. You kind of like gauge them on like, what are you good at? And we could like feed them right into unions, you know, carpenters union, iron workers union, like that. I don't know. So that, that sounds like a good solution to me. And, and I applied to every, you know, uh, Los Angeles Ho Homeless Housing Authority or whatever, I don't know what it's called, but I, they had like 16 jobs. I applied to every job with a cover letter saying, essentially, I was homeless on Skid Row. Now I'm not. When do I start? Mm -hmm. You know, and I got rejected from all 16 jobs. Yeah. Right? I mean, look, you could do job training in these facilities. You could also train people into being drug counselors. Like we're, we have, we are going to have a, a huge need for years and years and years for people to manage addicts in their own recovery and who best to do that than somebody who's been through it. So there's plenty of work available just in the space of recovery that people are have the lived experience to be well qualified to do once yeah. you've achieved recovery yourself. There's also uh, there's a uh, this group I did some work with called the the, um, the Oakland Youth Employment Project Partnership. Yeah. And um, they have a, a they work with a lot of homeless youth. And one thing that just really stuck with me when this guy explained it to me was that he was like, so we, we have these, these kids come in, these kids are, you know, have been, they've been homeless for years. And, yeah. uh, and we have them come in at nine o'clock every morning, and we have them leave at five. And he's like, even if there's nothing for them to do, they have to come in at nine, and they have to leave in five, or they get kicked out of the program. And he was like, the reason why is because he's like, if you're homeless, and you're sleeping in a tent, you don't, you become totally unconscious of what time it is. Like it could be 10 at, at night or it could be two in the morning. You don't have to wake up at eight the next morning. So you just lose all sense of even like the 24 hour clock. And, um, and so he's like, so we have to train people to just even be time conscious, just to be able to have in the back of their mind, oh, it's probably around 9 a.m. right now. Like those just basic life skills that we take completely for granted like having a rough idea of what time of day it is in any given time yeah. they have to they have to instill that back into people because their lives have been that unstructured yes and that's what happens at rehabs or the, at least the rehab that i went to or it's like you know you have to wake up at seven there's no fucking around and there's like a schedule of things you do until five o'clock and then it's dinner and you know it, it gets you programmed into this kind of way of living and uh you know for people to stay clean they need like a um a purpose in life i mean you need something you need human connection. So you get that with the rehab, you make the best friends you'll ever have. And, you know, you keep them and, and then the family will maybe come back and that may take some time, but you know, you need to be like passionate about something. And sometimes that has to be brought out of people and it could be becoming an electrician. I mean, that just the idea of like, I could go make start at $25 an hour at, right out of rehab that changed your life. I mean, that gives you hope, you know, yeah. so, it gives you self-worth. I mean, like a sense of, of, 
this is a, this sounds cruel. This sounds this sounds a little mean, but also if you've been a homeless drug user for 15 years, say, uh, you know, you you have been a, a victimized by your own life. What you know, whether it's a whether it's the system or whether it's of course of your own bad decisions, whatever. You know, I, I have sympathy for you, but you've literally spent 15 years doing nothing for anybody but yourself. Yes. It's like, yeah. and it's like when you when you get put into a, I would imagine that when you're put into a position where you actually get, where you actually start doing work for other people, like even just like whatever, like um, clearing debris in, in forests to prevent forest fires, just like get get into the habit of like, oh, I'm doing work that is for other people. Is this piece of your your life as a human being that's been missing for 15 years, you know, yeah. it's like the feeling of giving back is an important part of being a human being that you just completely like, I haven't heard it discussed much, but you completely just relinquish that part of your human existence for as long as you're living as a drug addict. Yeah. Well, it, that, that's where AA, you know, I'm a big supporter of AA, but I know it's not for everybody, but like, you know, when I went to AA, they were like, you're going to come here every Tuesday at seven and make coffee for everybody. Mm -hmm. That was like, I'm a person that has cost the state of California mi millions of dollars. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, not, not hundreds of thousands. I, just in surgeries, where I'm hitting half a million. Right. Surgeries. I'm not talking about ambulances, jails, all, all that stuff. The least I could do was make coffee. You know, so, <laughs> so like, it, that that introduced me to. And then now I sponsor people. Now you're giving people rides. You're picking people up. You know, you're, you're I sponsor people. It's like it, it, it transformed me into a complete taker. I mean, mm -hmm. a complete leech on society. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to even doing drugs, I consider myself pretty shitty, you know, and, and uh, leeching off of my aunt and uncle and giving them no gratitude in return. Um, and uh, yeah, I need, that was a vital part of me staying sober was like, oh, I have like a responsibility to make this world a little bit better than w when I woke up. You yeah. Know? And, uh, do, do, yeah. Do you, do you, uh, the folks who are on the street, when sort of the like the the homeless outreach groups, um, the homeless advocacy groups, you know, they're when they interact with uh, in, uh, somebody who's a drug addict on the street. Yeah. How would you describe the relationship between the addict and those people? Like, is there? Do, my sense is that it's not what you would imagine, where they're like, "Oh, I'm so grateful for your help," but it's more like, like a lot. What I've seen is that a lot of the homeless folks kind of are jaded like they understand that the advocates are not really that they're being used to a certain yeah. extent you know and so there isn't a lot of love or like they'll like okay i'll take the sandwich but it's not as if they're like feeling like they're being taken care of like it's a cooler relationship is yeah. that does that ring true to you well there's no capability of gratitude when you're under the influence of drugs uh -huh. or unless the only gratitude you're capable of feeling is if are you helping me get drugs right you know so i was very dismissive of these kinds of people um i would take what they had uh not you know maybe say thank you i don't know if i meant it but it was basically like can i anything that you can offer me can i somehow convert it into drugs and you know right. and i've seen time and time again some guy come down in a pickup truck with a bunch of blankets hand out blankets one guy runs up grabs seven blankets runs away an hour later you see him selling the blankets right you know that that's like a mainstay of skid row so right. it's really just what can i get out of you get the hell out of my way are you talking about jesus or something like get the fuck away from me what can i get out of you um is my experience with it you know and uh i had no 
because but you're really you're on a different plane of existence where there is no possibility of love yeah appreciation yeah. really um but then again there are homeless people that are because on skid row this is a big phenomenon where you basically become so homeless and so like fucked up that you can't even do drugs anymore i mean you don't even have the capability of making the money to do the drugs or you're too schizophrenic to do the drug and uh this is a thing that happens you know, so it's like there's people on Skid Row that aren't doing drugs or they're just smoking spice or weed because they just simply can't afford to do the harder drugs. Now, fentanyl is different. I know fentanyl is really cheap. I don't know. I haven't been down there since the fentanyl stuff, but um, maybe those people, since they're not under the influence of like horrific drugs, are a little bit more appreciative. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Another question this is kind of random, but um, I heard that one of the reasons why tent encampments started popping up like almost overnight in LA, like a, a ton, ton more than there used to be was because mm -hmm. of Occupy. Um, it was because, because there were a ton of activists handing out tents. Oh yes. Yes. So, so that's what I was told at the rehab, go down to Skid Row. And I said, I don't even have anything. They said, go to Occupy. They're handing out tents. Uh -huh. They did hand out tents. They handed out sleeping bags, most of which I sold for drugs. Uh -huh. um, I, uh, but yes, they, they were, and maybe that did create a little bit of an explosion because a lot of people traveled to LA from around Southern California and stuff for the Occupy thing. But a lot of those people, I don't think became permanently homeless. I think they were, when I was there, it was a lot of kids that just got out of college that didn't really have a job. There was a lot of kids that would live there during the week and then on the weekend, go back to their studio apartments that their parents paid for or whatever. There was a lot of that, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, like the Obama phones, you know, like they give out Obama phones. I'm not allowed to have Obama phones anymore because I've gotten 20 of them and sold them for drugs. I mean, that, that, that's what starts happening is where you just kind of sell everything that's given to you. But Who do you um, sell this shit to? You sell it to other people that have reached their limit of Obama phones. So <laughs> you can't get an Obama phone themselves anymore, which I eventually became. And then I become the person that buys the Obama phone. Uh-huh. And what about the what about the tents and the sleeping bags? Who are you selling it to? Other homeless uh, people or? There's, other, there's, homeless, there's homeless people that have some money, you know, they get their check and stuff and they want a new tent. They don't want to clean their tent. They just want a new tent. So, okay, I'll give you 10 bucks for your tent. Right. Wow. I'll, or, you know, I'll, or I want a new sleep. I spilled something on my sleeping bag. Like I, I'll buy your sleeping bag for five bucks. Right. God, it's such a, it's just such a transactional existence. It's like every, it's like every interaction is a transaction. Yes, completely. It's just like jail. So when I got out of jail, it was very foreign to me to like, I'm going to give you something. Like yeah. you have to give me a, a ramen soup if I'm going to give you like a cigarette. Like there's no. But it, it sounds it, like jail. You you informed more human connections than you did on the street. Like you, you had this. You sure, know, certainly. And I'm still in contact. With them. Yeah. Well, because you're not on drugs. Right. You know? right. I mean, there are drugs, but it's not like someone's like strung out on heroin. And I mean, there are in prison and stuff, but most people can't afford drugs in jail. So most people aren't on drugs. Right. And right. Uh, you do you get very close to people in jail. And um and I still talk to some people, you know. Did you find a lot, did you meet other people who wanted to kick in jail, who are like, who are like you, who are like, here's an opportunity to get my shit together? Yes, uh, I'd say 95% of the people I interacted with in jail were drug addicts. Mm -hmm. And were they, were 95, how many, like what proportion of those folks were trying to take advantage of their time to kick? Is that a common thing? Everyone, everyone in there is like, I really got to shape up. No one's like, when I get out there, I'm going to just keep doing the same shit. I mean, there are a few, I guess, but most people are like, no, nah, I really got to get my shit together this time and maybe not get clean, but like, I really got to stop doing meth like every day. 
Right. You know, so it's like half-hearted kind of, but like, you know, my shot caller, Ian Suvagian, the half Armenian guy, he's like, this has been my life for 10 years. The max sentence you can get for identity theft or whatever, fraud or whatever is a year is three years with 50%. So you get a year and a half. So he says, my life for 10 years is I do a year and a half. I get out. I, I commit identity fraud. I make money. I do meth. I last about six months. I go back to jail for a year and a half. And he said, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. Wow. You know, there's a, I know it occurs to me that you probably have to go, but, um, uh, so I won't keep you, but, um, cause I think no, okay. and we can do another one if you want to do another one or whatever, but yeah, I yeah. do kind of have to go in the next couple of minutes. Yeah. Well, just, just real quick. Uh, you know, I, I, I interviewed, I once went to this black barbershop in Oakland and I was interviewing folks there and every single person there, because I asked every single person, every single person who was there at the time had done time in the pen and, yeah. um, and they were having a conversation about, about, um, about jail and, um, the barber who's kind of like everybody had mad respect for this guy because this guy cuts the hair of like some of the Golden State Warriors and stuff in the in the shop, very yeah. kind of OG guy. Um, but but the, he was talking about jail in in the, this was not these were not as far as I know they weren't drug users. I mean some of them might have been, but it just wasn't a community of addicts. It was just guys who grew up in East Oakland, and yeah. um, and he was like uh, um, he was talking about jail like like uh, like almost like college. It was like he was like. He, Cause he goes, he goes, he goes, yeah, well, you know, when you're young and you're young, dumb, full of cum and you're like, you know, fucking around, you're, you're fucking around with crime, you're getting violent and stuff. And you just have no respect for anybody. You have no respect for your elders and stuff. He's like, yeah. he's like, he's like, you know, you go to jail and you like spend a couple of years and then you like learn how to stand up straight. You learn, you, 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 you learn really well how to respect your elders because <laughs> you get yeah, yeah. Beat up and then like he's like and you like uh and then you you come he was talking about it in this very nonchalant manner of like and then you come out and then you can hold down a job like then yeah. then, you can, then you can then you can raise a family and i was yeah. like it's really depressing that that's like the that that's so normalized that it's almost like talking about like white kids in the suburbs going to college but i was yeah. also like but in a weird weird way it was also like optimistic because i was like you know the 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 story of going to jail isn't always the story of like that white liberals will tell you about like you know this is where you become more of a hardened criminal it's where you become super traumatized there's you know, no good comes out of it it's like well that, that's true with some people but with a lot of people actually quite a bit of good comes out of it sadly yeah. we should have a better system than jail to do that for people but but that totally makes sense. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I would, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't not go. I learned more about life there than anything I learned in college. I learned more about cleanliness than anything I learned from my parents or any, you know anybody. And uh, I learned about respect and I learned people skills. And uh, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to me, man. Thank you so much. I yeah, really appreciate it. Get some time. Uh, really appreciate it. And I know you got to run, so I'll, I'll let you go. But, um, but yeah, thanks, man. I learned, I learned You're a ton. Great work. You're helping the world. I was incredibly moved by your interview with, um, dad. That oh, is. thank you so much for saying so. I'm glad. Please go on bigger podcasts. Like the world needs to hear you. The world needs to hear what you explained on that podcast. Yeah. I'll say the same about you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Take care. We'll reach out anytime. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye.